We are going through the book of Luke, and uh, we're, we're going to look at Luke 7 and 8 this morning. These are amazing chapters. Initially, we had uh, uh, planned out the bulletin covers and put a, on the cover the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower, but we're not even doing that this morning. <laughs> because uh, as we were planning the sermons, I realized, man, there's just so much here, uh, and, and these chapters, the power of God that's on display is awesome, and uh, we need to talk about that more than the parable, but if you're interested in the parable of the sower, there's about a million books on the subject, so happy reading. Um, <laughs> we're going to dive right in, um, and uh, right in here to, to chapter 7. Um, let, me, let me just jump right in in verse 1. I don't have the words up here, but you can just listen. After Jesus finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. Uh, he, was, he was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent uh, him elders of the Jews asking him to come heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, he pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. This is kind of a rare thing. You have a Roman, uh, a, a, you know, a, a leader of men here, a soldier, a high-ranking official who actually gets along really well with uh, the people of, his, of his, his town, the Jewish people. He's highly regarded, and so they say, man, he even uh, built our synagogue for us. He's a good man. Can you come and heal him? And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. For I say, for, uh, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And, and when those who had uh, been sent returned to him, they found the servant well. Here we have a situation when Jesus healed somebody from a distance. He didn't even have to come to them and lay his hand on them. He just says, okay, he's good. And he's healed. And right away in chapter 7, we're reminded that Jesus is greater than sickness. I'm going to be popping around to different areas of these two chapters. This one's in chapter 8. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but had lived among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out. Uh, he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Did that work? Sort of, I don't know. My throat's already raw, so <laughs> apparently this particular demoniac was also going through puberty. <laughs> They commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Now, for uh, many a time, 
the, the demon had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This is a serious situation, right? This guy is scary. He's naked and he lives in the graveyard and when things get really bad, he goes so ballistic and violent that people have to put him in chains to protect himself and everyone else. Pretty intense. And Jesus comes in there and goes, hey, how about you be gone? Now, he sets the man free and it turns out it's not just one demon, it's a whole bunch and there's a legion of them and so he sends them out to the pigs and everybody sees this crazy, incredible thing happen and can only conclude that Jesus is greater than evil spirits. Continue. Near the end of that chapter, Jairus' daughter has died and Jesus goes to her and he raises her, though not everyone sees it. He raises her from the dead and she is okay. And, but now a lot of people are like, did that really happen? I don't know. But you know what? He also did it in chapter 7. This is when Jesus walked into a little hick town called Nain. Where are you from? I'm from Nain. <laughs> There's a funeral going on. We know by now that Jesus loves big gatherings. Jesus, he, he loves dinner parties. He loves parades. He loves to make wine at weddings. And apparently he likes to spice up funerals too. Because he goes to this one and wow, this is a funeral no one will forget. Because he sees the body of the boy, he comes over and he whispers, wakey, wakey, and the kid sits up. That's a funeral no one's ever going to forget. By the way, the caterers were pretty upset. All right. It's public. Everyone sees it. Everyone realizes the truth. Jesus is greater than death. And then we see also in, in chapter 8, this might actually be the biggest one culturally. Maybe it's one that we would skim over in light of that last one. But Jesus is in a boat with his disciples and they're going across the Sea of Galilee and a storm hits them and it freaks even the disciples out and a lot of them are fishermen and so they're going, oh, what's going on? And they're crying out. Jesus is sleeping, <laughs> by the way. He's just sleeping in the boat. You know? It's like filling up with water. He's like, you know, like he's, that's how much peace he has. You know? And they wake him up. They're like, do something! And he turns to the wind and goes, Mark's gospel, we actually see what he said. He did say words. And the Greek, what he said was this. Be muzzled! <laughs> I wanted to see how she was going to interpret that. Isn't she awesome, by the way? Yes. I I just love this. I love that we can do this. It's fun. Um, <laughs> be muzzled. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus said the exact same thing to a demoniac at a different time who was screaming out and interrupting him. And he said, be muzzled. Be silent. He said that to the wind and the waves. Now, I find that really compelling. Because for one thing, the ancients, when they looked at the sea, they looked at the sea as a place of chaos and the sea ruled by the evil spirits that was so untamed. And he looked at that. He looked at the wind and the waves and the mightiest forces of nature and says, shh, 
and it obeys him. Jesus is more powerful than the wind and the waves and all the spirits that claim to rule over them. Are you getting the picture yet? He rules over a lot of things. And finally we come to this scene. And this scene just slays me. Luke 7, 36 to 50. Let's read it. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who was invited, or who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. I wonder if his voice was quivering a little bit. Like maybe he said that a little bit too loud and was like, oh no, I'm in trouble now. I've seen what Jesus does to people sometimes here. And he turns things around a little bit and I'm a little, well, maybe you should be nervous. No, Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then among those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a story. Who is this who even forgives sins? See, it's, it's one thing to be a great teacher. It's another to perform great miracles, but it's quite another to forgive sinners. Only God can do that. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows it's only God, and here he is making this statement, your sins are forgiven. I'm looking at the story. I want to zoom out for a moment and point out uh, something about Jesus' treatment of women. I'm going to read from this book again. I did this a few weeks ago, and people were, kept asking, what, what is the book? And it's, it's this one. It's the one that Jesse uh, Whitaker and I are doing for our home group right now, which has been amazing, by the way. I'm sure we'll do it again. Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. If you have questions, and, and uh, if you're not sure about the faith, if you're like, man, I don't know about this Jesus, I have all these questions, and, and like, you know, it, it, does Christianity crush diversity or muzzle women? <laughs> Those kinds of, like, all of these things, they're very uh, good questions, and she does a wonderful job at exploring these questions and giving some answers. And this is the chapter on women. And so I'm going to read you uh, a, a page here, and hang with me, because she's talking specifically about the book of Luke, which we're reading. And after I 
this, I think I'm never going to not notice this. So I want you to never not notice this also. You ready? The portrayal of women in the Gospels, particularly in Luke's Gospel, is stunningly controversial. Luke constantly pairs men and women, and when he compares the two, it's almost always in the woman's favor. It's kind of interesting. He gives the example, first of all, of the birth announcement to Mary and the birth announcement to Zechariah and how Zechariah and Mary basically ask the same question, but Zechariah gets punished and Mary does not. And he keeps going. The adult, she keeps going. The adult Jesus consistently weaves women into his preaching. In his first sermon, he enrages his audience with two Old Testament examples of God's love reaching beyond the Jews. One is a woman and the other a man. We talked about that just a couple weeks ago. In Luke 15, the female-oriented parable of the lost coin is nestled between the male-oriented parable of the lost sheep and the lost son. And Luke 18, the female-oriented parable of the persistent widow is paired with the male-oriented parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Even as he approaches crucifixion, Jesus stops to address female mourners in Luke 23. In a male-dominated culture, his attention to women throughout his preaching is remarkable. This is unheard of in the ancient world because women were still, by most cultures, considered property. The male and female thread works its way through Luke's healing accounts. First, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. Then he heals Simon's mother-in-law. In chapter 7, he heals a centurion servant, then raises a widow's son. Out of compassion for the grieving mother, in chapter 8, he heals a man with a demon, uh, then a bleeding woman, then a synagogue's ruler's daughter. Do you see this? He is paying so much special attention here. It's incredible. Um, skipping down, uh, Jesus' elevation of women as moral examples is even more striking. In Luke 7, he's dining with Simon the Pharisee. So we're back to our story here. Uh, when a sinful woman, likely a prostitute, disrupts the party, she weeps on uh, Jesus' feet, wipes him with her hair, and anoints him with ointment. And of course, Simon is appalled, and Jesus turns and compares the two. And in every case, on every count, Jesus elevates the lowly. In every count, she comes out higher than he does. Jesus shows special care for this woman. And he shows special care for women in general. Now, I want to go back here. Who was she? Okay? Who was she? People often say it was Mary Magdalene. I don't think this is true. I honestly think people get compared with the other story of Mary of Bethany doing the same thing. But Mary of Bethany is not Mary Magdalene in the first place. This woman's not named. I think Luke would have mentioned if that was her. But it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Um, as I read this scene, uh, and as I look at this painting, I'm just struck uh, by the fact we don't know who she is, but everyone else knows who she is. This painting is remarkable. This is one of the James Tissot paintings. Um, if you look around at, at this, I think he pictures the scene so well. Up here, he's got this one who's very concerned on the right side. He's going, oh dear, this can't be good. Up in the top there, you've got the man whispering to a woman going, doesn't he know? You've got this guy turning and, and saying something, going, hey, you guys better check this out. And up on the top right, you have a servant carrying a tray going like this. Ooh. It's quite a scene. 
And I think he pictures it beautifully. And if you don't mind, I want to use a little bit of imagination ourselves here this morning um, as we imagine uh, what is going through her mind. Everyone knows her reputation. Everyone knows who she is but us. Jesus knows, though. Everyone knew her reputation. The small town gossip knew all about her. She was the subject of many scandalous posts on the community Facebook page. (laughs) People complained. People slandered her. People made sure that all the other people knew about her. And yet here's Jesus, who is absolutely unfazed by her reputation and uh, unfazed by the entire scene. Is she an adulteress? Probably. Is she a prostitute? Yeah, likely. Whatever the case, he knew she was there. He probably was aware of her presence before anyone else. He probably saw her pacing back and forth in front of Simon's open door, hesitating, wanting to come in but scared, tears in her eyes. She's the same girl who had sat with tears Uh, as he spoke, as he taught on a father who welcomes sinners back home. His words apparently filled her with something she had never known, not since she was a little girl, not since before that one thing happened that set her on a bleak and unwavering trajectory. The feeling, that sense that she might actually have some worth. It overtakes her at last. She wants to go to him, but she doesn't come in. And instead, she disappears, and her feet suddenly carry her back home. And she knows what she has to do. She picks up her alabaster jar of perfume. It's incredibly expensive. It's her prized possession. The only thing of value that she owns. And she turns and runs back to Simon's house. She has to do this thing. And when she gets there, she slips in the open door. She pushes past all the dinner noise, past the servants, past the half-drunk guests, past the eye-rolling and the men who pretend to have never seen her before, until at last she stands at the feet of the one who had never uh, never even spoken to. She doesn't know what to do. She just starts to cry and her tears drop all over his feet. The room goes silent except for the grunting and the tisking and the audible sighing, but she doesn't care. She gets down on her knees and cries harder on his feet and she breaks open the jar and pours the perfume all over his feet and everyone's watching and she can feel their scorn but she, she pushes it all back and does something she would never normally do in public. She lets her hair down. The scene would already raise eyebrows because of the perfume, but now her hair is down and she's toweling his feet dry as she rubs in the ointment. She can't see Jesus' eyes, so she thinks to herself, what am, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm making an even greater fool of myself. Get it together, woman. Come on. But she can't stop. And then she makes the situation even more scandalous. She begins to kiss his feet. The theologian Greg Boyd points out how much sense this makes. She's just using what she has. You see, Simon the Pharisee, he has a nice house. He has wealth. He can throw a dinner party for Jesus. She doesn't have a house. She doesn't have a bunch of food. She doesn't have servants. But you know what she has? She has really beautiful hair. 
And she has perfume, which is probably even a tool of her trade. And you know what else? She knows how to kiss. And that's what she can give. That's what she has. So she says, I'm going to give all that I have to this Jesus. And she brings those things, even with her reputation, and she pours herself all over him, knowing full well that people will think it's something sexual, but they're wrong, and she doesn't mean it that way. And dear God, let him not think I mean it that way, she prays. And she pours out her thanksgiving to him in, in an unmistakable miracle. And here was the miracle. She proved here that Jesus is greater than shame. He's greater than shame. There's a band in the early 90s called The Violent Burning and they wrote a song about this particular scene. I'm going to give you the words. In the night, the harlot moves across the floor. She turns the handle on the door. One hundred eyes seem to look right through her. Why is she there? They're not sure. Behind her love, she falls down to her knees. Without a word, she begins to weep, and her tears fall down upon his feet. And she smothers them with kisses and dries them with their hair. In my life, sorrow has kissed my lonely heart. Fear of man tears me apart. And I've tried many times, or I've tried, but many times I've loved the world. Many times I've been the whore. I've cried a million tears and maybe more. So many times I have been the whore. I will fall down on my knees. I will sing, I love my love. I will weep, I love my love. I will sing, because I love my love. And my tears will fall down upon your feet. Let me smother them with kisses. Let me dry them with my hair. If I could be anyone at all, if I could be anyone at all, let me be, let me be the whore at your feet. Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What did he mean by that? Your faith has saved you. Faith for doing what? There's no indication that she and Jesus had actually spoken before, that he had actually told her that she was forgiven, that she would come and do this thing. I think she just sensed it. You know, she sensed the love of the Father and she was so drawn to it and she wanted to see maybe this could be true, that maybe I really could be loved despite all the things that I've done. This is faith. You see, when a centurion comes and says, can you heal my servant from afar, that's faith because he's coming and he's asking for a thing and he actually believes it can be done. And when the disciples in the boat says, Jesus, can you tell the storm to be quiet? That's faith. Because they actually think that he can do it. And when you're a woman like this whose whole life has been a storm and whose reputation is forever ruined and you come to Jesus with an act of scandalous devotion, you're showing faith. You're showing that you believe that he really is greater than your sins, greater than your shame. The sad thing is there's many believers who believe fully in miracles. They believe God can heal sicknesses. They, can, they believe that, that God can calm storms. They believe in all manner uh, of wonder. But you know the thing they can't believe? They can't really believe that God's bigger than their shame. 
maybe than other people's shame. He be- they believe he can forgive them, but they keep a part of their own heart hidden from him and from other people because it's just too much. And they think, yeah, I, I believe he forgives, but this thing, he's never seen this before. This, is, this shame is too big for him. And so they, it stops them from actually opening up their heart. It stops them from actually presenting what's really going on inside and taking it to Jesus. You know, Peter and Judas, they both had shame. They both denied him. You know the only difference? Peter went back to Jesus. He went back and gave him his shame. Do you believe that he really does forgive? Sad thing is, many will not go that far because they just don't believe that he's big enough. I want to tell you, friend, Jesus has seen harder cases than yours. Jesus is not shocked and appalled by the thing that you did. He's seen it before. He has storehouses of grace. How does he give grace? How does he cover shame? Well, some people think he covers shame by just saying a thing isn't wrong anymore. <laughs> like, that thing you did, okay, you know what? That's totally fine. We'll just say that's cool. But that's not actually forgiveness. And imagine if we did that to one another. Imagine somebody really hurt you and, and wants to be forgiven. And if you, you can come and just say, it's fine, it's no big deal. But we know that's not true and that doesn't actually fix anything. Because the, the offense remains. The wound remains. Now what Jesus does is he says, yes, you've done a really bad thing. Yes, it really has consequences. Yes, you really messed up. But I still love you and I still want to be with you despite the fact that you messed up. That's grace. That's a man who's greater than shame. That's our Jesus. There's one more story I want to tell. It's of a woman in chapter 8. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. He's on the way to heal Jairus' daughter. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And all denied it. Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I presume the power, I could perceive the power was gone out from me. And when the woman saw she was not hidden, he came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Can you imagine this woman? For the past 12 years, she's had an uh, issue of probably menstrual bleeding. Scholars are pretty certain about that, which is supposed to be a very private thing. But I'm sure people knew it was a lot harder to hide medical conditions like this back then. And she had tried every doctor. She had spent her savings and, and it had interrupted every aspect of her social life because if you're dealing with this kind of issue, then people would say you were ceremonially unclean for the entire month and those months would go on and it would never end. That would mean you'd be shut out of community. That would mean you were considered unclean by people you want to be friends with and would say, I'm sorry, I can't be friends with you. All of these things 
Even touching this woman's arm could make you unclean, they would say. So she tried to keep it quiet and, and tried to stop the bleeding, but it would, it would show up on her skirts and, and, and then sometimes she would leave a trail of blood and people treated her like she was a broken thing and something not to be looked at. What did she do to deserve this, they would whisper. Because back then, that was the conventional thinking. Who sinned? This woman? Her parents? Obviously, God's punishing her for something. And she probably looked inside her own self and looked in her conscience and said, God, what did I do? What did I do? And couldn't come up with an answer. So she decides, I'm just going to live with this. This is just going to be my life. Until she finds out that Jesus is in town. And she thinks, maybe, just, just maybe. She sees his entourage from afar. She wants to get in there, but there are too many people. And she's going by. Or he's going by, and, and he's getting away. And she says, no, no, don't leave. Wait, please, please. But he can't hear her. Excuse me, sir, can I get through? Ma'am, please, I need to. But nobody gets out of the way for her. And then she's filled with determination. She takes a deep breath, and she starts to push. She, the unclean woman, starts pushing and throwing elbows into people so she can get to this Jesus. People are turning around, noticing who she is, horrified that she's touching them. And she ignores them and keeps pushing until at last she comes within an arm's reach of Jesus. And she stretches out her hand and the minute she touches him, she can feel heat pulsing through her body. And it hurts for a second and she falls to the ground and closes her eyes and she knows, she knows, she can feel it. She can feel it. It's over. She's healed. This woman had shame also. Shame that was never actually hers to carry. Shame of one who was thought to be guilty, who wore a label. Shame from a person whose prayers haven't been answered. And in this case, Jesus proves his power is so great, he can even heal physical things, he can even heal hearts accidentally. That's how great his power is. Just being near him, just a touch from his garment, sometimes is all it takes. Ask the school of dance dancers to come on up. Do you carry shame with you everywhere you go? Some of us do. Some of us carry shame from past deeds, from secret indiscretions, from past struggles that you thought you just had to cover up. Sometimes people share or carry shame that was placed on them. Regret for things they never actually did. Carrying weight they were never meant to carry. Either way, friend, whether you're living with something that you did and can't seem to get clean over, can't seem to feel that shame lift, whether it's because of your own past and a decision that you make or decisions that you made or something someone else put on you, I want to tell you Jesus Christ is greater than shame. He's greater than all of it. He's bigger than your failures. He's greater than your reputation. He is the great miracle worker who can conquer anything, even the dirt, even the grime that we feel on our souls. He is the miracle worker.